At Netflix, building a user interface requires data about movies, actors, users, accounts, and much more. If each piece of data is coming from a different source, a programmer has to call each of the services that has access to that data. Falcor is a piece of technology designed at Netflix to solve this problem. Falcor creates a unified JSON model of all the data you could want, and Netflix engineer Brian Holt joins us today to discuss how Falcor works. We also discuss React, ES6, and JavaScript, and how all of these things fit together at Netflix. And Brian also explains why Falcor is extremely similar to GraphQL, which is a technology that comes out of Facebook that we've done a show on in the past. He also discusses why it's okay that there are these two very similar pieces of technology. Before we get to that episode, a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. You can sign up for Software Weekly or join our Slack community at softwareengineeringdaily.com. In addition to that, Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors. Whether you're interested in advertising a product or if you're interested in advertising jobs to potential developers, Software Engineering Daily is a great opportunity to get your message to the many developers who are listening. Brian Holt is a user interface engineer at Netflix. Brian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I'd like to start by talking about Falcor, which is a piece of technology that was built at Netflix. Falcor lets developers build loosely coupled connected applications. What does that mean? How does Falcor do that? Well, first of all, let me tell you that uh, I'm just an enthusiastic consumer of, of Falcor. I occasionally work on the documentation, but I'm, I'm not an implementer. But it is, it's a pretty awesome piece of technology once it's in place. We use it all over Netflix, including in our iOS app, in the web experience, in the Android. I think even some of our TV UIs are now using Falcor. And so one way to look at Falcor is that it's trying to solve the problem of a controller fetching the right amount of data from the server so that the data can be rendered by the view. How does Falcor improve the relationship between the controller and the view? Well, basically, your views are going to have some knowledge of what data they want, right? They, they say, like, I want to render the user's name and I want to render their, you know, join date or something like that. So the, the view passes that to the controller. The controller builds up this kind of path object by gathering up all these different pieces of information that it needs. And then it looks in its own cache and says, okay, I have this data. I have the user's name, but I don't have their join date. So I'm going to give them... The username that I have out of the cache, but I'm going to go ask the server for the join date. And then basically you get to treat both your, your data that's cached and local and your data that's on the server the same way, which is, in my opinion, is a pretty powerful paradigm, right? That you don't have to know what you have and know what you don't have. You can basically say, Falcor, go get things for me. And it figures out what you need and what to request and what not to request for you. Right, absolutely. So so basically the developer just gets to express all of their data as if it's just coming from this single JSON model. So developers can program as if all of their data is just sitting on their device in memory. But that's obviously not truly the case. So give a high-level idea of how Falcor achieves that illusion. Basically, what we have this path evaluator that's going to take these paths that you pass. And when I say a path, it's basically like, you know, when you're accessing a JavaScript object, it's like, property or object.property.property.foo, right? That's what these paths objects look like. They just look like 
JavaScript accessors, right? And so you pass that to Falcor. Falcor evaluates these paths. It's actually a graph-like interior. So basically, you can have two objects refer to the same object. So for example, at Netflix, we have lots of actors amongst all of our different movies. And if we updated one of the actors, like Kevin Spacey, for example, it would update House of Cards and American Beauty, right? So yeah, that's what it does. This Falcor path evaluator just figures out what objects it needs to go get, and then it looks in its own cache. Sure. Okay. And so Falcor is not an application server. It's not a database. It's not an MVC framework. It's a piece of middleware. So for listeners who might be confused right now, explain what does the term middleware mean in this context? Sure. So it's actually two pieces, and I'll explain middleware. It's the client side and the server side. And so basically, it's dealing right there in the middle of like the upper part of the client that's going out to the server to go request the data. And it's also dealing with basically the server-side routing that you have this endpoint we call the path evaluator, that it's this endpoint that speaks JSON graph, which is the language of Falcor, basically what I was just describing earlier with paths. At that point, it breaks apart these paths and does some routing to figure out what methods you actually want to call. So give me an example of like how I would request a subset of this huge data model. Like if I've got this big JSON model that represents all of the JSON for Netflix, and it's got movies and users and reviews and credit card information and everything about Netflix. How am I requesting a subset of that model? Well, here's actually the really nice thing about that is you get to picture all of Netflix's data as this big, giant object, like almost like a giant Redux store, right? And that's how you get to treat it and how you get to mentally picture it. However, underneath the hood, like that's not, obviously not at all what our data looks like. It's not all in one database or one table or something like that. So basically, you pass up this path evaluate or this path to your server. Your server deconstructs it to the various different calls that it needs to make. And then it just routes those calls to the various places that you need. And I think that's pretty cool because say you already have a RESTful API system right in place. You can add this additional method on the side that's basically the Falcor endpoint that just calls your existing API endpoints that gathers up all these data for you. And so basically you can turn, you know, 10 API requests into this one API request to this one Falcor endpoint. And then interior to your system, it just calls the other endpoints that exist already. Right. And in order to touch on that more, I think we should discuss the Falcor router. What is a Falcor router? It's like the, easily the most complicated part of dealing with Falcor. <laughs> like once you have the Falcor router in place, using the Falcor client is just a breeze. I mean, as someone that gets to consume it on the daily at Netflix, it's really pleasant to use. However, I was working on another project in Go, and I tried to create my own Falcor router. And <laughs> to be totally honest, I kind of gave up after a while because it is actually kind of a complicated piece of, of <laughs> software to, to deal with. Luckily... There's already one for Node. There's two for Node, actually. There's one for Happy, and there's one for Express slash Restify. We have a Java one interior that we keep talking about open sourcing, and I don't think we have yet. Anyway, so the Falcor router basically is this. It's a single endpoint, right? So all Falcor requests, posts, deletes, updates, all go to one endpoint. And that endpoint then deconstructs your path that you're asking for makes the various calls, gathers them back up, and sends them back down. And that's the most basic Falco router. There's actually more on top of that if you want to go for the more advanced features. 
yeah, I, I'd love to talk about it in more detail. Like, does so does a Falcor router like sit on its own server? No, it's it's going to sit wherever the, your other API endpoints sit. Okay, so what's involved in setting up a Falcor router? Like, does does the router talk to these like databases itself, or does it talk to services that sit in front of databases? Give me more of an explanation for that. That's kind of up to you as the implementer. I wouldn't recommend it doing much more than just calling other methods. But if let's let's say let's just talk about the express router because that's actually the easiest one to talk about. Basically, you you have this middleware that let's say it's path.json, right? And so you have a request that comes into path.json. It hits this Falcor router middleware, and then all that Falcor middleware is going to do is it's just going to point at other methods. It's like okay, if they're asking for this kind of data, go here. If they're asking for this kind of data, go here. So it just kind of points them in the various directions where you would retrieve the data from. And that's the easiest and best way to implement Falcor. Okay, got it. So, you know, as you said, there's this kind of aggregation thing where if you're requesting data from different data sources, it gets aggregated into the same object. So does this mean that the Falcor router often has to make multiple requests to different services or... How exactly does this interaction work? Because so the client gets to think, instead of the client saying, I need this resource from the credit card database server, and I need this other resource from the Netflix movies credit card server, I can make a single request to Falcor and say, hey, I need both of these at the same time. How does that get aggregated into a single response from the client's perspective? Again, that's kind of up to the implementer. I would say the easiest way to do it, if you had something like two very disparate requests coming into one, from one single Falcor request, basically you would have two asynchronous actions. You'd say, hey, async, go grab me the credit card. Async, go grab me this movie. And I'm going to just wait for you to come back. And then I'm going to package it up and send it down. Okay. So what's happening is that on the client side, these two, like multiple requests are being made asynchronously. It's just that the Falcor client handles that breaking up into two separate requests for you yeah i mean it's it's up to you how you want to structure that you can you can lump them together you can send them separately Um, i think generally i believe we tend to send them separately but again it's kind of up to you okay is it also up to me what happens if only one of the responses comes back or how does that work so falcor has these kind of interior data types there's one called an atom, there's one called a ref, and there's one called an error. So basically, you can have parts of your request that error out, but other parts of the request that still work okay. So it's just these kind of sentinel type values that we send back to say, okay, here's, you know, this one this one didn't work, but this one did. Okay, and Falcor takes care of the fetching and the caching and the cache and validation of data. So explain how this happens. How is Falcor managing the caching? Oh, that is an ever-evolving question. <laughs> it manages it one way right now. I don't remember which one we actually settled on, but it, I do know that we're about to radically change. Actually, I do remember which one it did, we settled on, but we're about to radically change it. The way it, we manage it now, basically, we try and be as immutable as possible, but we found that you know, introducing something like immutable JS was a non-starter because Fal- that would make Falcor too big and too slow, to be totally honest. So we kind of do this thing where we mark versions of the nodes in your tree of your cache. So basically, we show all, all of your data like a tree, and then we mark these versions of it. And as soon as we change something to it, we increment the version. And that's when we go back to compare, hey, did this part of the cache change? We can just compare versions as opposed to doing some sort of deep equality or something like that. 
And that's that's how it works underneath the hood. Okay, so subversioning, so interesting. What were the trade-offs for going with that strategy as the current caching strategy? These are notes that I've gotten from some of the implementers. So I, I wasn't sure. Actually I, I understand we're going we're going deep on a subject that you're not really a total developer sure, on. Sure, sure. But. but basically, what they were looking for is they want Falcor to be as fast and as lean as possible. Being that is it, it is a library, right? Like we don't want the bulk yeah. of your your client side code coming from Falcor. So this was a kind of a trade off that it's pretty fast comparing simple version numbers. You have to have a lot more logic to actually make and update those version numbers. But basically, when you go to look up something, it's a really fast comparison as opposed to doing something like deep equality, which would be really, really slow if you're trying to do that. Right. So Falcor has a pattern associated with it called async MVC. Can you describe this pattern? Like, How does async MVC compare to what we would normally think of as MVC? I'm not exactly sure what Falcor's take on that as a whole is, but the basic idea is that if you treat all of your data as async, then you get to treat it all the same way. And I'm from Netflix, so I can't go 20 minutes without talking about observables, but it's kind of the same idea with observables, right? That if everything's an observable, you can treat everything like an observable, and thus you can, you can do some fun compositions, and so you can make assumptions about your code, which is always a powerful thing to do when you're writing code. So when you when you treat everything async, that means you know everything that comes in, you can just assume that's going to be an asynchronous processing of it, and you get that benefit. And I think when you apply that to async MVC, you just assume that all of your different parts are going to be asynchronously talking to each other. And yes, it's a an additional level of complexity on top of that, but like that's it's one more step, and that's it. Everything's async, and thus nothing gets more complicated than it already is. So it sounds like this is getting into the reactive programming stuff. We had Matthew Podvisaki on the show, and he's heavy contributor to RxJS. Mm-hmm. How does RxJS play into this conversation? At first, Falcor was using the full suite of RxJS underneath the hood, just internally, because, I mean, these are all asynchronous problems, very well modeled with RxJS. The real problem with that is RxJS is actually a huge library, especially when you're using all of the crazy operators. Like there's, I don't know, RxJS has like a billion operators. And when you start using all the weird ones, you have to include the whole library, not just like the light one. So that was the first step, but we eventually ripped it out. I want to say that Falcor as of right now, or at least as of soon, does not use any observables underneath the hood, unfortunately, right? Because I think they're really cool, but it's just, it's just too big. Talk more about that. Like, why are observables compelling, and and how do you use observables at Netflix? Well, we use observables everywhere that we can, and it kind of comes back to what I was just talking about. That once everything asynchronous is modeled as an observable, you can map them together, you can reduce them, you can scan them. Maybe for listeners who don't know, could you define the term observable? Sure. An observable is. It's very much like an iterator, but kind of in reverse, actually literally in reverse, since it's, it's the mathematical opposite of an iterator. So basically, when you, when you have an iterator, you call next on it, and it gives you something, basically, right? With an observable, the observable, rather than you pulling information out of it, the observable, sorry, the, yeah, the observable pushes information at you, right? So you basically say, hey, whenever you push things at me, do this. Mm-hmm. And that allows for some pretty cool things. Basically, you can start treating all of your incoming data like 
arrays, right? Just arrays that are developing over time. So if I have, for example, a WebSocket that every you know, 15 second gives me an update to the latest movies on Netflix, right? I can map over them and basically create car- like new interfaces for them on the fly. So it basically opens the entire world of functional programming of map, reduce, filter, scan, all that kind of stuff for all of your asynchronous data coming in. Yeah, Matt was talking about this. He basically drew a very closely parallel line between arrays and event streams, I think was the way that he thought about it. Uh, Yeah, I encourage listeners to check that out if they're more curious about this reactive programming stuff. So let's talk some about React. So I guess why is Falcor a good fit with React? And also, how does React fit into the conversation of reactive programming? Sure. So the first thing that I want to underscore as much as possible is that React is not reactive. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So for anyone listening in, just I realize that the names are super similar. It's it's a cool name. Like React is a cool name. It's as similar as Java is to JavaScript. There you go. That's a very appropriate way of putting it. So I love React. I work with it every single day. I talk about it a lot. So people get sick of me talking about it. So... Falcor fits really nice with React because you have all these components that are aware of what data they need to render, right? Like you have your prop types, things that you're expecting, right? So basically you can bundle these things up and you can basically have all your parents' components pull all of the interesting bits of data that all the children are going to need and then it kind of packages them up kind of top down, right? So my parent asked for mine and I asked for my child's data requirements and we pass them up. At the top level of the app, we're going to say, okay, I've bundled up all these data requirements, throw those at Falcor. Falcor says, okay, give me a second, and then it hands you back everything that all of your different children components asked for. This is compelling because now my parent doesn't actually have to know what I need, right? Basically, it has to know is like, I have these children that are, that are going to have some data requirements, and then I'm just going to grab those from the children and pass those up. And so, for example, if I have like a movie like a movie display item that I'm going to make or a component that displays movie information. And suddenly I want to render what year the movie was in that I was not previously doing it that. Previously with React, I'd have to go to every single component and say, okay, I need the year, and then this component needs the year, and then this component needs the year, and this component needs the year. But if you kind of do this like data gathering technique, basically wherever you need the year, you just say, okay, I need the year. And then that just gets passed all the way up automatically, which is pretty compelling. Is there any way that server-side rendering is assisted by Falcor and React working together? Not in particular. Typically what you would do with that, I guess typically, the way I, I have previously approached it, and I'm not sure if it's the best way yet, is I kind of, well, yes, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I went through several you mental convinced yourself. I convinced myself. So Falcor has a neat way that you can pre-populate its cache. And so basically you can say, hey, Falcor, here's your kind of seed data. You can kind of sideload that in. And so then React doesn't have to actually care where it's coming from. And so if you just pre-populate that cache with whatever data you're going to expect to be there, then all of your server-side rendering is already ready to go. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. So... What about GraphQL and Relay? Falcor has drawn comparisons to that. If I'm working with React, how does GraphQL and Relay compare to Falcor? They're pretty comparable technologies, and I think that's actually a pretty compelling reason to to use one of them. 
both Netflix and, and Facebook kind of came up with the same idea and there was no no collaboration between the two. We both kind of yeah, just arrived. Yeah, I find that so interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've been using Falcor. It's going to be almost three years internally now. And I think Facebook has been as long, if not longer, doing GraphQL and Relay and that kind of stuff. That's so bizarre. Like, do they, are they like basically the same or do they have some sort of striking contrast? They do have some contrast, but they're generally scratching the same itch in relatively the same ways. I'll go ahead and throw out there that I think GraphQL and Relay is, is a much more powerful engine. It's much more expressive and you can do more with that syntax, especially the GraphQL part of it. And it's really useful if you're building something like Facebook where you have like these complex relationships and all these different things that point at each other and those kind of things. Like You would have a really hard time building Facebook with Falcor because Falcor doesn't express some of those relationships adequately in my opinion. Mm, I guess, is Facebook more of a, you know, when I think of Netflix, the first data model that comes to mind is maybe not necessarily a graph, but certainly with Facebook, I really, you know, you can think of this graph of connections. I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's what you're driving at. Yep. You you nailed it right on the head is that we don't necessarily have to have these complex social graph expressed in our syntax. Mm -hmm. Like Netflix inherently has a very restful problem, right? Like we're just creating, reading, updating, deleting, <laughs> right? And so that's what Falcor is really built for. Falcor is built obviously for the Netflix problem because that's why we built it. All right. Right. Okay. So that's, I guess that explains like why you wouldn't do some overhaul of like, well, GraphQL is richer. We should obviously migrate to it because it's just overkill. I wouldn't venture to say most web apps these, these days are just crud right like they're just doing Ah. restful type operations and if that's what you're doing falcor is simpler i'm going to go ahead and assert that it's easier to get your head around and yeah i think it it kind of reduces the surface of your problem area thus makes it a little bit easier to work with Hmm. maybe this is a risky tangent to discuss but is this kind of like the same sort of paradigm like why you guys went with Restify or you migrated from Express to Restify because it's just like the simplicity is it better suits your needs? The reason why we migrated from Express to Restify is because we had memory leaks with Express that oh, we couldn't of course. solve. Right. You know, I did an entire show on this. I don't even know why I'm asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing. That's okay. okay. Anyway, so let's talk more about React and Netflix. Give me some more detail on how React is being used at Netflix. Well, basically, anywhere that you touch on Netflix as a public consumer of Netflix is going to be React these days. I think we're finally off of everything else. We do have some other frameworks internal, most notably Ember. We, we have some Ember internally, but everything that's public-facing on the non-member side, which is the side that I work on, and the member side is all React. On top of that, now some of our TVs are starting to ship with React as well. So some of the stuff that you'll see on like the newer versions of TVs will be using React as well. So are you sort of testing React by first serving it to the unpaid users? Kind of the cool thing about Netflix is they kind of let each team do what they think is best. And so, you know, the non-member team... I'm trying to remember who did it first. I think it was actually the the member team decided to work in React first, but the non-member ships stuff first. So take that however you want to. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. So so in Netflix, you know, you're building on so many different user interfaces. What's the development process like for 
building components that make sense across different interfaces. Do you need to collaborate with all these different teams to say, okay, we want to build this component and we want to have it structured in a way that makes sense on TV and phone and desktop and all these different things. How does that development process go? We tend to work more as our individual team. So our our non-member team tends to collaborate more and then our member team because we have pretty radically different needs, right? The member team is like very perf oriented. Like you're displaying, you know, a hundred movies at once. You want it to be super silky smooth. And so they have very, very high perf goals and low tolerance for any sort of anything that will introduce latency or reduce the frame rates or anything like that. Whereas with non-member, we have, you know, it's pretty much forms, right? Like you're filling out your form to update your payments or you're filling out forms to create a new user, that kind of things. So we're not so perf sensitive. And so, but we have, we want to be more flashy. We want to be more, you know, look at this. This is really cool. We want to be more educational. And so we have very different user needs and thus we tend not to share too many components because our our needs tend to be pretty widely different. Is the performance of React UI components, is it better than the previous UI libraries Netflix used? I would say on the whole, yes, as compared to previous UI frameworks, it is more performant. But I'm also a big proponent of if you write code well, it's going to perform well. Like you can write Angular mm-hmm. 1.0 really performantly and it'll work just fine. So it's more on the craftsman than it is on the tools. Right. Okay. So, I mean, given that you're such a advocate of React, so why is the project so compelling to you? The project's more compelling to me, not for its performance or anything like that. It's actually more because it's so maintainable and it's so readable. Well, I use the term readable more carefully, but I, I believe it's very maintainable in the sense that if I have a problem in my UI that I look at and I see this button's not working correctly, I have a, I instantly know where that problem can be. And I compare that to something like Angular 1.0, which is the last Angular that I worked in. If you see a button on the page that's not working, it could be in the controller, it could be in the directive, it could be in the template, it could be one of the you know many services you're pulling in, it could be in like one of the other two directives that it's depending on or pulling from. So you look at a problem, you say, I have a problem, but I have no idea where it is. Whereas with React, since you have these components that just encapsulate other components, you're kind of reducing your surface area for where these bugs can show up. So I see the button, it has a problem. I know it has to be somewhere in that component tree probably just right there in the button. And that helps me debug my code very quickly. And that's the most compelling reason why I keep choosing to use React. Does Netflix heavily contribute back to the React open source project? We have some people that that open PRs. But yeah, to be totally honest, I don't think it's not a whole lot. Okay, right. So you're giving a talk at the upcoming OSCON about ES6 and React. What are you planning to touch on in that talk? Well, it's kind of broken up into two pieces. There's the first piece is all ES6, and here's a bunch of the ES6 features that you're going to see and use in your day-to-day. So to kind of get people like instantly up to speed on most of what they're going to be seeing from ES6. And then the second part of the workshop is what is React, and then let's build an app in React. So what are the major changes that we see between ES5 and ES6? Oh, it's it's so huge. If you've ever re- read the entire ES6 spec, which I have done, <laughs> it's I would, not that I recommend it because it is huge, but there's a lot to it. So there's there's a lot of syntactical pleasantries that they added in, like arrow functions and destructuring and 
the REST operator, some of those things that are that you know you could already do with ES5, but it just got a little bit easier. Another one would be uh, template literals, right? Those are also really nice. But we also got some really, really new powerful features like generators and proxies and symbols, things that we we couldn't express before. And now, given ES6, given these new tools, we, are, we can now express new paradigms of programming given these new tools. Mm-hmm, I see. Does React do anything to promote the ES6 functionality? So one of the things they chose to do with that is now you can create React components using ES6 classes, which are probably actually un- <laughs> undoubtedly the most controversial feature of ES6. Reason being is that they look like Java classes. And so when you're a Java programmer coming to JavaScript, you look at these and say, these, these look like classes that I know. And you make a bunch of assumptions about that. And they are all wrong. <laughs> How are they wrong? Well, you look at it and it looks like classical inheritance. It, it looks like the kind of inheritance that you'd see in, in Java. And it's not true because it's still prototypes. It really just desugars down to putting stuff on the prototype. Which, if you're aware of what's going on, that can be an okay solution. But for anyone expecting it to act like Java does, it's it's wrong. It doesn't work that way. Interesting. So you said it was controversial. Were there people who were staunchly saying, you know, we should do something else? Or what, what were the alternatives? I think the alternative really was just like, don't do it. And the reason being is that, you know, when you're making a, a programming language, and especially a, a programming language that's gaining as much surface areas as JavaScript is with all its new syntaxes and abilities, you now have to interoperate with all of these other pieces of the of the language, right? So now every time that we make a new feature in JavaScript, we have to say, okay, how does this work with classes? And that just adds overhead. It learns, th- basically, it makes the language go slower in terms of ability to develop, and it makes learning JavaScript just that much harder because we now we have this entire new problem domain. Okay, interesting. So I want to start to close off by discussing JavaScript at Netflix a little more. What is something interesting that Netflix does to increase performance with JavaScript? Well, I think one of the more interesting parts of our architecture is the way that we choose to interact with our microservices. Again, I'm from Netflix, so you can only give me an hour before I talk about microservices. (laughs) Yeah. Which, by the way, as my side rant on microservices is they, they're totally awesome at Netflix. And I just, I used to work at Reddit and I would have never used them at Reddit because it would have introduced so much complexity at Reddit. So use microservices when they become the thing that you do need and don't, do, do not prematurely introduce those. So given that, given that we do use microservices, um, we need some ability to kind of aggregate that in one space. And so basically we have all of our microservice teams ex- export to us basically these objects that we get to interact with in our node layer. And so they export these microservice basically clients, right? These microservice clients, and then we pull them into our node layer. Our node layer does a bunch of all the data munging and all that kind of stuff, packages up a nice little API request, and then, or not, not an API request rather, but basically the, the server-side rendering and then sends that down to the client. So we have this kind of node we call it the middle end that kind of acts as the guardian to the rest of the Netflix services. And that, that presents some really fun opportunities, especially for me, because I get to write Node every day. Yeah. So since you unlocked the microservices... Pandora's box. Pandora's <laughs> box. That's, we actually have a uh, 
software engineering daily bingo and microservices is one of the words that is on that bingo board. <laughs> yeah, um, that's good. So, <laughs> but another one is no ops or DevOps or whichever you want to discuss. And we had, there was a discussion in the software engineering daily Slack channel recently about this no ops thing. Obviously Netflix is kind of famous for, I think coining this term when, when Adrian Cockcroft made a post about it and do you experience that no-ops paradigm at Netflix, or do you even know what that term is, or does it mean anything to you? I haven't heard that term, but I have. <laughs> <laughs> Given the context, I, th I think I have a good idea of what it is. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> basically, the idea that you have basically these automated services taking care of the operations for you. Is, is that legitimate? Does that actually happen? To some extent, I mean, there's always some babysitting to some extent, but we have some pretty right. cool services like the open source projects that we do, like Spinnaker, that end up handling a lot of these kind of overheading complexities for us. Because, I mean, when you're as big as Netflix and you're managing so many services and so many servers, it becomes impossible for even teams of people to understand what's going on at a high level. So this is like the ideal that we asymptote towards, this no-ops where you have services taking care of all your ops procedures and stuff, but it's maybe not necessarily a reality or a reality to varying degrees. Yeah, I mean, stuff still crashes and burns, right? And then the, whoever's on call gets has a bad day, right? That was me a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so it's great until it doesn't work, and then it then it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Are people rewriting any of the old Java services at Netflix in JavaScript? For right now, we're pretty happy with how things are going with our Java microservices. And it doesn't even have to be Java. As long as it interacts with the JVM, the team can choose whatever. So we have stuff written in Groovy. We have stuff written in Scala. We have teams that are kind of doing a lot of cool stuff with Java 8. So for right now, we're happy with the JVM's performance in our backend services. Hmm. Okay, well, I guess final question, you know, since we touched on stuff that you're going to be discussing at OSCON, you know, OSCON is obviously about open source. What are the open source projects that kind of the nascent projects that you're seeing right now that you're excited about? We still have our big, big focus on Falcor and getting that right. We want to get it more performant and also more user friendly. There's some talk about basically being giving you the ability to interact with the cache directly rather than going through some weird wrapper objects that you kind of have to do right now. We tried to do that with proxies, and it was just really, really, really slow, so we decided to go down other paths. But that's a big focus. Ways that we can integrate more with the kind of Redux model as well. With Falcor, we, haven't, we don't have a great story on that yet. We're trying to figure that one out. And then we have some others, kind of little things interior working. One of them that I've been working on is uh, basically an automated testing of accessibility. So basically, it's going to spin up a Chromium in debug mode so it can pull apart the different layers as opposed to just the different nesting in your HTML. And then it tells That's you... That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been my pet project for like 18 months. So we'll see how long it takes me to get the goddamn thing out. But it'll tell you things like this text is unreadable, this text is too small, you don't have good ARIA tags, or you know, as many things as we can detect automatically. I was at F8 recently, and there was a talk about accessibility in React that was really, really cool. It seems like they are putting a lot of effort into getting accessibility right early on. Yeah, definitely. 
it's incredibly important when you think about, I wish I could pull uh, where I got this number, but someone told me that anyone that's got people browsing your site, 17% of them have some sort of disability, whether it's temporary, like someone like breaking an arm or something like that to mm -hmm. permanent disabilities. And so if you're not doing accessibility, you are in some way hampering 17% of your audience. Yep. Which is absolute insanity to me. Yep. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot of people. And okay, well, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so anything we can do to make the web more accessible to everyone, it also makes your website just better to have a better accessible site. Absolutely. Okay, well, Brian, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a really interesting conversation. Big fan of Netflix. I'm going to go watch some House of Cards. <laughs> cool. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, Brian. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm. Bye. Okay, later. Later.